We cannot have the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us if we are saying no to Jesus. Take a moment to reflect on that statement. We cannot have the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us if we are saying no to Jesus. The witnessing power of the Holy Spirit is released through obedience to Christ and His Word. Now my goal this morning is not to scold those who feel like you're in a constant refrain of not obeying, nor is it to shamuse the ones of you who feel like I'm obeying God fully. Because this is a challenge for all of us that we have before us this morning. And as we approach Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, I want you to think about a few things as we approach it and read it. And as I'm preaching the sermon, the first thing is, ask yourself, am I living consistently in view of what I know about the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I living consistently? Second, am I living a life that is in accord with what the Word of God says? Number three, am I refusing to do what I know Jesus Christ wants me to do? And fourth, am I refusing to share my faith with others because of the fear of rejection or the appearance that you may be unintellectual or uncultural or any other reason? Those are a few things I want you to think about as we dive in. Now remember, back in verse 12, we saw the impact of what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing through his apostles. There were signs and wonders <coughs> and miracles. There was a profound unity that existed in the body of Christ. Remember, they were of one mind and one accord. And so, do you remember the various reactions from the lost world regarding the church? Remember that? Some looked in and said, we dare not join this group of people. Others esteemed them highly. Some would not dare to join. Others admired them. And many others came to faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that they were multiplying greatly. The disciples were multiplying daily. And the lost world gained this kind of understanding. These people serve a serious God. And these people are serious about serving him. That's how the world looked upon the church. For they had just had an occasion that took place in the church, right? Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in the church service. Why? Because of their hypocrisy. As a result of what God was doing, the gospel was progressing. As a result, the Bible says that the Sanhedrin were ticked off. And jealous about what was going on. Because why? They had, the, they had the entire religious system by the throat. They felt like they were the religious elite. And all authority belonged to them. And there's this upstart Nazarene. The Lord Jesus Christ who had upset the apple cart. Right? So they crucified him. and then, But they couldn't keep him in the grave. Right? And so after the resurrection he emboldens his apostles to be witnesses. And they're witnessing for his cause. And then, of course, we learned last week that the Sanhedrin throw him in the county jail. Wasn't a Jewish kind of uh, 
jail cell. This was the public slammer that all 12 of them are placed in. But there's an angelic bells bondsman that shows up and opens the doors of the prison. And the Sanhedrin come to work the next morning and they've got their funny hats and long flowing robes. And they're, they're ready to meet with these individuals and interrogate them. But guess what? They're not found in the prison. And the guards say, you know what? Guess where these guys actually are. They're right back in the same place where you told them not to go. They're in the temple and they're preaching the words of life. They're preaching Jesus Christ. And so remember what I said. They were not delivered just for the sake of being delivered. It would have been an awesome thing. to you're, you're in prison for preaching Jesus and you're delivered. And you think, wow, comfort. I get to go home and put my head on my own pillow. No, they were actually released for a greater obedience. They were released for a riskier endeavor for Christ. Because now the angel says to them, here's your commission. I delivered you. God delivered. Now go stand in the temple and preach Jesus right before the very ones. So that puts you in prison to begin with. So they became bold and zealous and risky for Jesus and the cause of the gospel. What an awesome lesson for us. Now, in, the regard, in regard of obedience, which this is what's going on in their lives, right? They counted their obedience to their master more important than anything else. Now, think about this. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. We, know, we hear that. But then we hear Jesus say in 1 John, If you love me, Okay, how many of you say you love God this morning? Raise your hand. All right, how many of you are obeying him? Raise your hand. Wow, lost two th a third, three quarters of my congregation, right? Well, what does the command say? Love the Lord your God. With our, the mind is designed to help you love God more, but the ultimate issue is to love him with your affections from the heart, uh, encouraged by the mind. All scholarship should lead us to love God more and to love people more. If you're just learning things for the sake of learning and you're missing it, it's designed for you to love God more and to love people more. And so it's in this realm of obedience to Him that these disciples didn't have to go to Baptist class 101 and learn how to obey. As soon as God transformed them, they were in the mode of obeying their Master because they loved Him. Now in the mode of obeying, here's what I want you to see is going to take place if you're obeying Him. Beginning in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Remember, they were arrested again. They went in. They didn't want to upset the crowd. So they go and get them again in the temple. And when they had brought them in, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. I think two verses drive the entire chapter. After Ananias and Sapphira, beginning in verse 12, carrying all the way down through verse 42, there are two verses that carry the narrative. That, the first one is that verse. We must obey God rather than men. The other one is down in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. For the name. Those two texts, those two verses drive the text thematically. We're going to see the, the next one on July 4th weekend, right? We're going to see that one, what it means to suffer and obey for his name. But for this one, note that we must obey God rather than men. And then Peter's going to preach. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Folks, who, who grants repentance and forgiveness of sins? Jesus does, right? He grants it, and we are witnesses to these things. Not only did they see the resurrected Lord, but they're witnesses experientially of the fact that the gospel can change their hearts, and did change them. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those, check this out, who, y'all remember how we started off? Absolutely no power, absolutely no witness without the Holy Spirit of God working in us. We don't have a chance to do anything for God's glory in this church if we're not obeying Jesus Christ. We're not going to make an impact on this world if we're not obeying. So here are two things I want you to think about in the mode of obedience. Those in opposition to the gospel will try to silence our witness. You see what these guys did, the Sanhedrin? They're attempting to silence the witness. And in verses 27 and 28, see it in the passage. We're not making this up. It's important that you always see what the preacher is saying from the word. And so the Sanhedrin, they're given their charges. The first one is just this. There's an implied disobedience. We told you not to speak. And guess what? They're now speaking again for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very obvious that they disobeyed this command. We told you not to speak and you are doing so. So we gave you a religious legal command not to speak in this man's name. And you violated that command. Do you find it interesting that the Sanhedrin failed to even recognize the miraculous escape? They don't even ask about the fact that how did you get out of prison the first time to begin with? Why are you even here today? How, how is it that you got out of prison and instead of jetting and going back to Galilee, you came back and preached again? There's no questions about why you're doing this or nothing about the miraculous escape. It's kind of stunning uh, that they got out of prison to begin with, that the angel delivered them, but they're avoiding the person and work of Christ at every turn. They, were, they will utterly bring contempt upon themselves because they will not even mention the name of Jesus. Do you see it? In the text it says, you, you shouldn't speak that particular name. And we, we learned early on that they did not want to say the name Jesus. They didn't want to, to give the Lord Jesus uh, of Nazareth the title of anything going on on that particular day. They were standing against it. In some circles of Judaism, even to this day, there's so much contempt that rests upon the Jewish people and even hearing the name of Jesus. But you know what? As you learn from this passage, God can save them, just like he saved you. Well, did they command them not to preach and teach anymore in the name of Jesus? Of course they did. They disobeyed a plain instruction given to them by the religious elite and the authorities of that day. So the first thing, well, there's an implied disobedience. We told you not to speak, and you're speaking. Here's the second thing. They have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Now, this may appear to be an overstatement, but what did we learn in verse 16? People were streaming into Jerusalem from surrounding towns, and what you have being fulfilled is the progression of the gospel. And when the Spirit of God has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses. And we learn that the gospel is going to go to the ends of the world. It's going to go to the nations. So the nations at this point are streaming into Jerusalem. And so don't, this is not an overstatement. There are people coming into Jerusalem. And these men are saying, you've turned our whole town upside down. 
You're filling this place with your doctrine. And, of course, they didn't, did not want to recognize the healing that was taking place. And the third charge goes like this. Note this. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, these were all ways to silence their witness. They didn't want them speaking about the name of Jesus. Now, do you think that this might have brought about a little bit of a guilty conscience among the Jews that day when Peter says to them, well, when they say, we're bringing, you're, you're trying to bring this man's blood upon us. Do you think they're feeling a little bit guilty? I don't think it's guilt leading to repentance, but it's definitely them thinking about those days and thinking about the trial of Christ and how they manipulated the Roman government and had Jesus crucified. They're thinking about these things. Do you remember what happened in Matthew 27? Pilate wants to release Jesus. And Pilate says, I wash my hands of this matter. And Pilate said to them, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered. I remember this. His blood be on us and our children. That's right. And our children. And this statement, I believe, haunts the Jewish race even to this day. And Peter reminded of them this, did he not? He actually reminded them of this many times in preaching the word to them, just in the book of Acts, of what we have seen alone, he reminds. He says to them, you crucified him. Do you remember the elements of apostolic preaching that we've been talking about? You remember? God sent his son into this world. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses. That is the apostolic witness concerning who Jesus Christ is. You disowned him, you disnounced him, denounced him, and handed him over to be crucified. And there's no doubt that Peter's words are gnawing at them at this point. And that third charge, you're trying to bring his blood upon our heads. Folks, think for a moment. This is not anti-Semitism. As a matter of fact, Peter was a Semite, <laughs> right, himself. And I want to remind you that in the face of his enemies, the love of God... And that he had toward the love of God in saving him was the same love he was sharing to these Jewish men in order to see them come to Christ. It was, this was not to beat them up with the gospel or to say to them, hey, you're going to hell anyway in the handbasket. No, what was Peter's motive? My life has been changed by grace through faith. And this same Jesus whom you crucified can save you as well. Right? He was making that absolutely clear to them. And folks, listen. The worst thing you can do is to think that the most loving thing you can do is not open your mouth and tell somebody when they're wrong about Jesus. That they need to read what the Scripture says. And there's, you cannot accept their wrong as right for them. You're not allowed to do that. Because you're a witness of Jesus Christ. And Peter's standing before the most powerful people in the land that day would not keep his mouth shut, but told them to their face, it's pretty bold preaching, right? You put him on the cross, but God raised him up. We need to be willing to share the gospel. So I want to remind you that the world is going to do their best to silence your witness for Jesus. Is that not correct? First Peter is an absolutely wonderful book, and you know who's preaching the sermon here. It's Peter, and this is his epistle we're looking at, First Peter Listen to the flip side of silence. They're trying to silence the witness, but according to chapter 2 of 1 Peter, 
verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And if you read the context there, it says to us as believers, you've got a character to hold up to. You've, you've got good citizenship that you need to live out, right? In order that when you do share Jesus and they're trying to silence you, in essence what happens is you muzzle their mouths because of your love for Jesus. And your good character. And the fact that you love people. Y'all getting this? So let your life, as it says in 1 Peter, let it be an example to others so that you will actually muzzle their mouths instead of them trying to silence your witness. The world will try to silence our witness. Here's the second thing. You must be ready with an answer in defense of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now Peter's going to be the primary spokesman for the apostles. And he's going to do that up through chapter 13. And then the, it's going to change over. And the primary spokesman is going to be the apostle Paul. But notice how he answers. It is necessary to obey God rather than men. The ESV says we must obey God rather than men. So their own trial for healing a lame man and their own trial for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter basically says, what you don't understand is that we must obey our God. Remember, he's already said something very close to this. Chapter 4, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Peter goes on to say, we cannot. We can only do what we know we're supposed to do. We can only speak what we have witnessed. And so here, Peter gives it straightforward. We must obey God rather than men. You judge rather it is right to obey God or men. So as for Peter, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Hey, and if you've met with Jesus, you feel the same way, right? Remember, one of the greatest motivations for sharing Christ it's not a CWT class or an EE class or a faith evangelism class. The greatest motivation is that you've spent time with Jesus. Right? That's the motivating factor. And so Peter is saying we cannot do, we must speak of what we have seen and heard. He makes this clear. We have a moral obligation. Y'all see how strong this is? It's like on the 4th of July, you saying something like, we must obey our president. Because we have freedom in the U.S. The moral obligation. And I agree with that. As long as he's not asking you to do something contrary to what this book says to you. Right? So we must obey God rather than Donald Trump. Or God rather than anybody in this world. Including the church. And that's why Martin Luther in 1517 stood up against the Roman Catholic Church. is Because what they were asking was unbiblical. And Martha, Martin Luther says, Here I stand, and I will not be moved. If you excommunicate me or kill me, I'm going to stand on the Word of God. So that's the same thing Peter is saying, that moral obligation. And again, Acts 5.29 becomes the single verse in the Bible to teach us that we must cross the line into civil disobedience when we're asked, by any governmental authorities, any church, any state, any president to disobey God, we must obey God rather than men. Y'all see that in there? Okay, a couple of things we must explain if you're going to have this defense. What did Peter do when he was defending his 
desire to obey God rather than men, what did he do? Well, the first thing he did was explain his mission, right? He tells them right out of the gate, no civil, I must disobey civil authorities when it's in contradiction to the word of God. John Stott puts it like this, misuse of God-given power to command what God forbids or to forbid what God commands necessitates a Christian duty to disobey human authorities in order to obey God. Folks, do y'all understand that this is the very principle of our mission? Is that we have to obey God. When it comes to the Great Commission, teaching you to observe all that is written therein. What is that an issue of? When Jesus gives his, gives his last marching orders before descending into heaven, what is the essence of the Great Commission? It is obedience, right? If we never obey the command, we'll never make disciples. So the principle of what Peter has to say to the Sanhedrin that day is this. I belong to Jesus. He's my master. I must obey him. That's the essence. That's the principle of our mission. God's authority is ultimate. Remember? All power has been given to me. Now go make disciples. And in the meantime, remember that I'm with you always. Right? Even to the ends of the earth. So his claims over his church are absolute. And universal. And again, therefore, whether it is the state or the church or any other derived authority that tries to tell you you can't obey God or you should do something against God, then you must obey God rather than man. This is the principle of our mission. How are they so fearless and liberated by Jesus Christ in the matter they're in? Folks, it was because of their obedience. And when they obeyed, God stood, right? In their obedience, God showed up. In their obedience, God worked. And so think, folks, I don't think it's any different today for this particular church in the 21st century that we must obey Jesus. We must obey God rather than men. Peter doesn't stop there with his defense, and neither should we. Principle, the very first principle of his defense of why he should obey God or, or, or the, was the mission. We must obey God rather than men. But he also explained his Messiah, right? Don't we need to be ready to do that? After all, isn't it Jesus that changed us to begin with? Well, isn't he the reason we're at this church? Right? Notice how Peter does it in verses 30 through 32. He points out again the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to keep pulling the trigger to the gospel, don't we? You, you do realize that all of life is living out the gospel. It's not just that decision that you made when you were an eight-year-old in a moment in time at First Baptist Church Ozark, and you've never once returned to that decision. I would tell you that that decision was false. If you've never returned to that decision of the gospel, and the gospel is not lived out in your life, it stands to reason that you never had it to begin with. The gospel is something we live every single day. Day. And Peter's returning to the only thing that can change a heart. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Right? So he returns to the gospel and he's preaching it again. And notice what he says. He says to them, God of our fathers. Y'all find that interesting? He's the God of whose fathers? Well, he's the God of the apostles' fathers and the God of the Sanhedrin's fathers. They're Jewish folks. They're Hebrews. 
This very God who made a covenant with Moses and Abraham is the very same God who sent forth His Son from heaven. Now notice how strong this is. He's the God of the Apostles' fathers, and He's the God of the Sanhedrin's father. And Peter's making this specific reference to the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And he's reminding the Jewish people that Jesus Christ from Nazareth is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. He's saying that He is Yahweh saves. He is saying that the Son of God is God incarnate. That's what He's saying to him. Remember Exodus, 13, Exodus 3, 14 and 15? God said to Moses, <coughs> I am who I am. And He said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So he's indicating this to the Sanhedrin, that they have a fellow unity as Israelites. And he's reminding them like he did before, you put the covenant-keeping God of Israel on the cross and crucified him. And God raised him up, right? And that covenant-keeping God, if you reject Jesus Christ, then you reject God. Because he is God. And he's reminding them that if you do this, He's saying to them, he's our hope, and we believed and trusted him, and we have his spirit, and he's your only hope. And you need to trust him and obey him so that you can have his spirit. That's the preaching. And then he brings up the resurrection again. You know, the Sanhedrin can't stand this because they're made up of Sadducees. And you know about the Sadducees. The reason they were sad, you see, is because they denied the resurrection. And so every time he brings up resurrection, the Sanhedrin put their gloves on and they're like, we deny the supernatural. The Pharisees, on the other hand, the conservatives are saying, hmm, we believe in the resurrection. They just didn't believe that the Lord Jesus Christ came forth from the grave. So he again goes to the resurrection and says, the God of our fathers raised him up. And Peter reminds them of their culpability. You killed him by hanging him on a tree. What an awesome term. What a loaded term. You killed him by hanging him on a tree. Now, how is that a loaded term? Because Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is the man who is hanged upon a tree. So for a Jew, for you to be crucified was a curse against you by God. However, in the language of chapter 3, verse 13 of Galatians, we learn that Jesus Christ became a curse on the cross for us so that the curse of the law might be lifted from you. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And Paul quotes, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. Listen to 2 Peter, 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. We have been healed. So there's a dual understanding going on. Okay? Y'all listening? It's a loaded term. Cursed is the man who's hanged upon the tree. It's loaded. Why? Because they considered, the Sanhedrin considered, him to be cursed by God because he was hanged on a tree. And in doing so, the one who was cursed actually redeemed us from the curse that was against us. It's a loaded term. Aren't you thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself all your sin. And the curse of the law was this. You could never obey it. 
an infinite amount of years, in an infinite amount of years, you could never obey God perfectly. No way possible. Some of you got up this morning and you were keenly aware of that with the first word you said to your spouse, right? When you got up grumpy, right? You're keenly aware that you've missed the mark, that you sinned against God. And think about this. The Lord Jesus Christ, cursed is a man who hangs upon a tree. When the father looked at the son on, on Golgotha, he was bearing your curse. He was bearing the curse of the law so that the curse could be removed from you so that you could have his righteousness. That's awesome to think about that. So Peter, not by accident, reminds them of that loaded term, you hanged him on a cross, but the fact of the matter is, God put him there. God put him there according to his definite plan. It wasn't by accident. And think about the moral culpability. God delivered him up, according to Acts 2, but you crucified him. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. It's all the way through the Word of God. So in verse 31, he continues to explain that Jesus is the Messiah. You crucified him. God raised him up. And God exalted him. Right? God has exalted him as to his right hand as leader and Savior. And notice this. He alone... You know, there are people in this world who say you can get to heaven in many ways. There are many roads to heaven. Folks, this text says that only one person can grant forgiveness and repentance. Right? And it's the exalted Lord of glory seated on his throne. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. The only way to have your sins forgiven is to bow before the one who is seated on the throne. You will never make it to heaven on your goodness. You will never make it to heaven through a religious system of doing good or better things or what you're going to avoid. You won't make it to heaven on the do's and don'ts of life. You will make it to heaven solely based upon the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ who alone grants repentance and forgiveness. Man can't grant you forgiveness and repentance. If I could, I would. In spite of your own ignorance, I would do it the best I knew how. But I can't. That's reserved for the king who's on his throne. Note this, folks. Jesus grants repentance and forgiveness. You don't even have repentance in you as a virtue. You don't even have faith in you as a virtue. Those things are gifts from God. Faith is a gift from God. Repentance is a gift from God. Regeneration is a gift from God. He grants repentance and forgiveness. He makes a heart of flesh out of a heart of stone. Don't you remember that day when you possibly walked into a church and heard the gospel for the first time? Or a preacher knocked on your door and shared Jesus with you and your heart was so hard, stone, and all of a sudden you didn't know what was going on but that thing become pliable. And boy, it was hard before and all of a sudden God makes it soft and you're able to understand with the mind. And your emotive part is moved. And you trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? That's what Jesus can do for us. He grants it. He makes one upright who was once crooked. And that's true for everybody in this building. I was once a sinner. Bound for hell just like you and me. All of us were. But praise God that he intervened. He sovereignly regenerates us through his spirit. So when Peter tells them... That Christ has been exalted to the right hand. Now track with me. When he says he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. 
in order to grant repentance and forgiveness. He's reminding them that it's only Jesus Christ, the Savior, who has the power to save their very souls that day. They put Christ on the cross, but he could save their souls as well. That, that very day, he could forgive them. And notice verse 32, which is the culmination. Notice how he, he ends this part. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter says, you killed him. We're witnesses of all this. And they could have hollered and screamed out, no, we didn't. But the fact of the matter is, they knew they did. And God raised him, and we are witnesses. God exalted him to the right hand of the Father. And he alone dispenses repentance and forgiveness of sins. And the apostles were saying that day, we are witnesses of it. Why? Because they had seen him crucified and resurrected. Not only that, but they had believed in him. They were experientially witnessing what it meant to have repentance and forgiveness of sins granted to them. The Holy Spirit is the divine witness, according to this text, the divine witness of the facts of the gospel. Notice what it says. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. He's the divine witness of all the gospel workings of Christ. God gives the Spirit to those who obey Him. Y'all see that in the text? Peter and John, Peter and the apostles are being persecuted for obeying God. And they say, we have the Spirit because we obeyed Him. We have the Spirit, He's saying to those, and you don't. But God gives the Spirit freely to, to everyone who obeys the gospel according to His Son. So you can have the Spirit of God. And this morning, the same offer is there. Uh, no, I'm keenly aware that I could be speaking to people who are lost. You don't have the Spirit. But if you'll bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him as Lord and Savior in what He has accomplished on Calvary for you and becoming a curse for you to forgive you of your sins, the debt that you owe, if you trust Him, then you will have the Spirit. He gives the Spirit to the ones who obeys His Son. Please obey Jesus and the Gospel. Instead of like this Sanhedrin that were filled with jealousy, you could be filled with the Spirit of God. Instead of being filled with wrath that you may very well have this morning, you can be filled with joy. Instead of being filled with unbelief, you can be filled with life-transforming grace. Well, the offer is made, amen? It's been made. You can have the Spirit. He still grants repentance and forgiveness of sins. One of the greatest sermons ever preached was sinners in the hands of an angry God. It was preached in 1741 by Jonathan Edwards to the north in Northampton, Massachusetts. One of the greatest sermons ever preached. If you read through that sermon, you know, you hear the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you're thinking, man, that's tough. I don't know how many Baptists could take that sermon today. I'm being honest with you. You read through that sermon or listen to it, which I have a couple of times. Whew. I don't know if you FBCO folks could take it. I mean, there are so many announcements about hell and the travesty of, of dying without Christ and judgment. It's just over and over and over and over again. But what is profoundly evident in Jonathan Edwards' sermon is that he was keenly aware that people in his congregation were slipping into hell. And he loved them enough to tell them the truth. Oh, he was so passionate. He says at the end, fly to Jesus and miss the coming wrath of God. 
And folks, I want to remind you of something. You know why Peter preached so hard here with love? Because he knew that if that Sanhedrin did not turn to Jesus, they would spend eternity in hell. Folks, hell is real. Judgment is real. Folks, everything Jesus ever said in the Word has come to fruition. How can you ever deny that Jesus taught that hell was real? He taught more on hell than he did on heaven. He preached more about the truth of demons than he ever did of angels. I want to remind you, folks, that hell is real. And I want to stand before you with passion and love you enough to tell you that if you don't turn to Jesus, you'll spend eternity in hell. But I also want to remind you of this. You don't come to Jesus just for fire insurance. You don't come to Jesus just because you've got a fear of hell. You come to Jesus because he's Lord. He's Savior. And your desire is to follow him. Father, thank you for your love for us. God, thank you for your word. God, uh, you spoke to me so clearly in my own neglect of obedience to you. God, none of us can stand aloof from this. We must obey God rather than men. God, so often we let our culture and we let family, we let friends just silence us because of our fear. God, would you deliver our church body from that fear? God, would you give us boldness to speak? Lord, many prayers have gone up on Wednesday nights since we started prayer meeting of, God, would you give us boldness to speak? Let us obey you. God, grant us repentance and forgiveness. Lord, I pray you would grant that today. Just like Peter offered that gift so freely to those who even crucified Jesus. Lord, there's probably no one in this building who can come close to that kind of magnitude of sinfulness. To having crucified physically the Lord Jesus. But yet, you offered them repentance and forgiveness. Lord, there's no one in this building that you're not mighty enough to save. Lord, I pray that would take place today if it's your will. And for Christians, God, embolden us. God, help us to obey you. Nothing's going to happen for your glory unless we're obedient to your spirit and your word. Lord, grant us that this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.